0: Let's get started. Wes Moss here with an edition of RSB, Retire Sooner podcast. We're obviously our mission is to help a million people retire at least one year sooner, but we get a lot of questions through this and I don't know. I think it's maybe we've hit a little bit of an inflection point. We launched episodes starting in April and now here we're through really getting deep into the summer. Kids are going back to school, so I'm going to, in my mind, it's almost like fall. But we have now gotten to the point where I think we, we've we had enough listeners and enough people listening long enough to start emailing in and saying, hey, I've got a question. And again, we, we have a YouTube channel. We have uh, we have a blog that obviously I write on, a newsletter that we send out to a couple thousand folks. And then, of course, at westmoss.com, we're constantly writing about the topics that we're researching that, are all designed to figure out how you can retire or help you figure out financial decisions and life decisions to be able to retire a little bit sooner. And that's our, that's our goal and our mission here on the podcast. And I guess we haven't done this on retire sooner podcast. I've done this on radio a lot, uh, but I haven't done this on the podcast yet but since we've been getting so many questions lately, I figured let's just go dive into dive into that and answer some of the questions that are maybe a little bit more common questions that we can reformulate into some that'll really make some impact here. So I brought in Mallory Boggs, our producer. She's been producer from the very beginning helping to create this podcast, and she's here with me today, and we're going to answer some of these questions, and if you have questions in the future, we'll answer them right here on the show for you. Now, we typically, unless you want us to say your name, we're going to change names, because money gets a little sensitive, and we want to be able to protect your anonymity, and uh, even, I, I think that you know, I've been doing financial live financial radio, too, for about 15 years, and I I, want, I don't know what the exact percentage is, but at least 50% of all folks change their name when they call in because they don't want their neighbors to hear about their million dollar 401k problem or their Roth conversion issues or their kids they're having issues. So there's a lot of alliterative names as in um, Wendy from Willowdale or Kevin from Kentucky, or Jim from Jonesboro. And, and I think that alliterative nature is just because people want to have a little anonymity. So we do the same thing here, too. And, we, and we're going to have some questions that are coming. We're, we're changing some names. And we, I like to do that. I think it's appropriate. But we're fine to give you a shout out with your actual name. In your actual log- logo, <laughs> location, uh, if you like, so just let us know in your note when you email us. So, so with that, Mallory Boggs, what were you? What were you whispering?
1: Oh, I was. Uh, I was going to say, tell them exactly where they can uh, email us.
0: Oh, at westmoss.com? Yeah, yeah, there you go. The, yeah, yeah, head
1: head to that contact button at the top. Oh, right the hand contact corner. button. Yeah. You
0: know, Tony, we you you as a listener, you don't see the the hand gestures that we go through in these um, in these podcasts, but. Mallory thinks that I have some sort of sign language ability, which I still don't. And anyway, I
1: try so hard. You I, can just
0: talk. I mean, I, I'd like I to fine. hear from you. All
1: right. All right. Well, listen, I'm here today and I'm very excited Good. To ask okay. some of these
0: questions. We, we, I know. And we've got uh, a lot of Retire Sooner happening today, and this is a fun part of it. I'm glad to have you here. Yeah. So t- let's, let's go dive into these questions.
1: All right. So um, yeah, and it's it's really fun to get these. I actually normally see these as they come in, so I'm excited that uh, we're going gonna have you addressing these on air so the first one is from sally who is living in the mountains outside of seattle She's,
0: there you go your typical sally from seattle
1: there you go there you go and i mean it does sound pretty picturesque though that the sound mountains nice of seattle. i
0: don't really think of mountains when i hear seattle i think of, of rain rain and tom hanks yeah yeah
1: yeah yeah and not sleeping <laughs> um so she asked she said i have about five hundred thousand in my 401k at a large tech company with Uh, decent diversification i'm 50 married debt-free and i'm currently taking advantage of maxing out my catch-up contributions i have the option of putting money into a traditional or a roth 401k
0: okay a traditional or a roth Mm -hmm. got it Mm -hmm.
1: so now she's wondering can i max out the savings in both of these
0: both now, this is this is pretty common to think it is a little confusing. It's thinking, "Oh, I've got this totally separate 401k or ch- it's almost like a channel within." You've got one 401k that kind of has two channels. You very often now you'll have the regular option that that we all know about, the good old-fashioned pre-tax money, and then we have the Roth option, which is the after-tax money that gets to grow tax-free essentially. Mm-hmm. And and they're both they both have advantages and disadvantages. The 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 way I look at this well first well, of all the the easy answer is And actually
1: actually before you answer that question, can I can I finish out sorry, she has a few more things oh, more. I was gonna Keep add. Going. Yeah, so sorry. She um she also wanted to say if if not on maxing out the savings in both of these, which should she prioritize? Which I think a lot of our listeners would probably be curious to know too. Yeah.
0: Um, yes. Yeah.
1: And then and then just to sort of, you know, round it out. She just so you have the full picture of what she's looking to do. She says uh, my husband and I have the goal to retire to a small ranch in Wyoming and enjoy the slow pace of life outside the big city. We expect our income and expense needs will be much lower in retirement, assuming Americans continue to eat hamburgers.
0: <laughs> Much lower I wonder what she means by continue to eat hamburgers. Is she gonna be on a ranch? What Do you
1: think she's gonna, is she gonna have cattle? I would I'm just picturing like kind of like Yellowstone, right? The T V show.
0: Me, you mean the best show ever created on television?
1: That one. Yes, that one. Did I tell you I started watching that recently? Oh, have you really? I have. Oh my god. And what do you think? It's like you can't stop watching it.
0: <laughs> so what season are you on? No,
1: no no. I'm still in the first one though. I'm taking it kind of slow. You know what like, episode? I'm like I think I'm like like two or three, I just started. Have
0: they taken the bull into the bar yet? Not yet. Okay. No. Then, okay, you would remember that. Oh, so you are okay. This is so. I'm so happy for you. I'm so. I'm so sorry. We're so off topic here, but uh, again, a window into my life. That she brings up Wyoming. By the way, so I lived in Cody when I was a little kid, and uh, my dad was a vet, and we thought he was going to be a cowboy, and we moved out there to be a cow doctor, and it was. It was brutally hot and brutally cold where we were and we lived. And I think he made, I think he was making, I want to say it was like 12,000 a year, 15,000 a year. It was a long, was a long time ago. And I mean, I was a little, little, little kid. So over 40 years ago and it just, it just didn't work. I think my dad was like, I'm never going to be making be, make a living. The climate's rough. And my mom was like, I got to get out of here. And it was my brother, my younger brother was with us. He was like a a baby. Anyway, I, for some reason, I still in my mind, my heart have this idea that I want to live on a ranch and I want to be in Wyoming and I've skied at Jackson Hole or snowboarded Jackson Hole. I love that area. Now, it's no small. First of all, so let me get to the question here. Actually, no, let me go back to Yellowstone. You are in for such an amazing show. It's starting like this app. Epi- I think the next one that you're about to see, if you're in episode three or four, I got totally hooked. Even my wife, who was like, oh, I don't want to watch this cowboy show. Even that's when she got hooked. She's like, wow, this is good. And then the seasons kept coming and it got better and better. And it's just truly the best show on television in a decade or more. So I'm excited for you. I'm happy for you. And I'm, ex- I'm very excited for when the next season comes out. Anyway, <clears throat> speaking of Wyoming, which, in, in a lot of areas, so a s- small pace of life outside the big city, which, by the way, can be still pretty expensive. I mean, that, Wyoming is so – people – Is it? Oh, people have gone from – it wasn't that long ago okay. that they were, like, giving away land. It's like, if you come build a house here, we'll pay you or give you free land. And I guess near the resort in the mountain towns, it is so – like, the secret's out. Uh. So beautiful. It's kind of, like, almost like Denver, where okay. – Denver, it's like secret's out, beautiful weather. It's not as cold as they say, but it's beautiful in the summer. Wyoming's a little bit like that. It's kind of like a gorgeous, gorgeous place. And and if you want to be near that picturesque area, it's really expensive. Oh. <clears throat> so But again, it's still a big state and there's still not a lot of people. So you can always find something less expensive. But who knows how far away you're going to be from the town. So Sally in Seattle is... Thinking about a couple of really important things. The fir- first thought, simple answer on this one. You can't, you, you don't have a combination. You cannot combine your amount. So 19500 is the max. But once you hit 50, you're 6500 So it's $26,000, 50 and up, right?
1: Sorry. So in, in backing it up, so you're talking about the like what you can put in your 401k and the combination?
0: Right. Your total amount. In the total 401k, whether it's one channel or, or splitting the channels, but total is twenty six thousand. Okay. For 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 her because she's fifty and up.
1: Okay, so you can't, so it couldn't be over forty thousand. It's Correct. just Okay.
0: Technically, you could do half of that in the Roth channel and half in the regular channel, but twenty six is the max, max, max. Got it. All in, all now, in. Combined. And
1: hang on, what is this about catching up?
0: So they call it a catch up because when you are fifty, so. The, Normally, if you're 21 and you're working, the most you can put in is 19500 in 2021. When you hit 50, so again, for a lot of people, that's a lot of decades. But when you're 50, they call it a catch-up because you're allowed to put in more. And this is, this is go- money If in the traditional 401k. It's going in pre-tax, meaning if you make $100,000 a year and I'm going to use round numbers and you put 20 in, it, it lops $20,000 off your overall income. And your overall tax rate can be a little better because your income is lower, technically, because 20000 of it went into this tax-deferred vehicle or what is considered pre-tax. So with that, you can't do the combo. It's 26 total. Secondly is this. To some extent, when I'm thinking through these Roth questions, conversion questions, or just a Roth versus regular 401k, which is what Sally's asking about, it's always about – your tax rate today versus your tax rate tomorrow. Taxes today versus taxes tomorrow. Meaning that if I'm in a 35% tax rate today, I'm really high income earner, but I'm gonna be in a much lower income bracket in the future because I'm gonna have my house paid off and I've saved most of my money in cash and, and outside of a 401k, and I know that I'm gonna be living on dividends and my income, I've managed my income lower in the future then that's a situation where a Roth conversion or even putting money into a Roth. So essentially, if I'm having the privilege to get money into a Roth 401k, again, or a Roth conversion or similar thought process here, if I'm paying 35% in order to do that and to get this money into Roth, Roth 401k, but I'm only saving 15% in the future when I start to access that money because I'm in a much lower tax bracket, then it's just... Not really a good deal. It's kind of a bad deal. If if the inverse is true, then I would tell you to really lean, I would tell Sally to really lean towards the Roth 401k, meaning that you're in a relatively low bracket today. So if we were to inverse inverses and say, hey, you're in the 15% bracket today. But because let's say... You are married and your husband is uh, some, you're going to ha- either have a big pension and then your husband's going to, or her spouse will have a pension and maybe you're going to have some rental income kick in. And Now all of a sudden your tax bracket when in retirement is, let's say, the same or higher, then it's actually a really good deal to either do the Roth 401k option or do really start to think about Roth conversions. We've done an entire episode here with Ed Slot, who is a, Roth IRA fanatic, and he makes an amazing case that everything under the sun should – everything should go into a Roth. We've seen some great headlines around Roth IRAs lately. I want to say it was Peter Thiel who ended up getting his pre-IPO Twitter stock. I think he did put that – it was in an IRA, and then I think he converted into a Roth. And now that that Roth IRA, which was pre-IPO Twitter, now worth 5 Billion dollars, Mallory. That's a tax-free asset, a tax-free $5 billion. Well,
1: that doesn't sound too terrible, does the it? The
0: greatest Roth conversion of all time.
1: Well, now I'm sold on Wyoming, and I'm uh, definitely going to finish Yellowstone. Let's
0: open an office out there.
1: Let's do it. Let's open an office out there. That sounds like I wonder fun. how
0: many listeners we have in Wyoming. You don't think of...
1: I don't know if they have that many people.
0: I think they've got, I don't know, but I, I, ho- I bet you we at least have one. If you're listening, we want to hear from you. Yes, okay. please.
1: So the next question is from Kevin from Kentucky, and he asks, uh, we recently inherited $150,000 and would like to put the money into our next home. We think- next home, okay. The next one, yeah. We think real estate values are close to peaking if they've not already. So we've decided to wait 8 to 12 months to see what happens with the market. Where should we park this inheritance in the meantime? A couple years ago, we would have considered putting the money into a CD to collect a small percentage of interest at least, but the rates are so low right now, we just don't think it makes sense. Is there a better
0: option? Mm, Gosh, I wish there was a better option. And let's talk this through because this is a big question. For listeners and and I just had Joel Larsgard on an episode here of Retire Sooner podcast and it'll be up in a couple of weeks if you don't see it. But uh, Joel Larsgard the, is the uh, runs How to Money, which has become a massive money podcast here in the u.s and we i asked him the same question i said you know i've been getting this question a bunch and he said this is one of the number one questions i've been getting it's because it used to be an easy one to answer it used to be financial planning 101 10 years ago when interest rates were higher and you could get four percent let's call it 10 or 15 years ago and you could get three or four percent on low risk Money market type investments or CDs, and the market, let's say, was less certain or it felt less certain. Meanwhile, the market's always just as uncertain. So, there's there, 10, 15 years ago, we were in in a rougher market pattern. So, we were bouncing from one technology crash to a financial crisis, et cetera. So, there's just, there's more, let's call it, there were more landmines when it came to equity markets because we had gotten really overvalued in the late 90s. But the point here is that it used to be an easier conversation where you say, look, you're going to get a, a fair amount in money market. Financial planning one on says you're going to buy a house in the next year Do for anything for that matter. if You're going to buy an RV or a house in a year. It's a big chunk. You can't risk the capital you have put aside for the big chunk. So, so, don't put it in the market because we're uncertain over the next year. We're always uncertain over the next six, twelve, eighteen months. But I'm, but we're certain that you get a fair amount of interest putting money in the money market, and that was an easy. And people wouldn't argue that. Okay, I get it. I get it. Today, it's it's a lot harder because of all three of those factors have changed slightly. First of all, you get virtually zero in money markets, so that's a hard, that's that's hard for people to swallow. Right? Interest rates are virtually zero, so you get almost nothing in safe, 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 safe money. Second of all, the stock market has con- it continued to rally dramatically since the financial crisis, particularly in the last year and a half since COVID shutdowns. So people look around and say, it's zero over here. The market's been going straight up. Uh, then why wouldn't I just put my money in the market? And we say, look, just because the market has done well – doesn't mean it's going to do well over the next year. And if you need hundred thousand dollars to be able to close on a house and now that hundred thousand is 80, that's a material change in your finances and you, it might kill the transaction. Mm-hmm. So for you to try to get a little bit of extra money out of this to then take the risk of having this really important financial goal met in your life and it's taken away because the uncertainty of the stock market, it's, it's really taking a big gamble. So Kevin from Kentucky, I would say, intuitively it makes sense. Yeah, I want to put the money to work and again, the market's been good and I don't get anything over here in cash, but, and you're tempted, you're tempted to do stocks. And gosh, some kid at 16 made $5 million in Dogecoin. Like, sure, let's put it all to work. But we have to be really careful about FOMO or fear of missing out, not torpedoing our financial plans. Now the next piece of the equation here would be just real estate in general, and I get a lot. I've, we've we've talked a lot about: do we wait and buy real estate, or do we wait to invest in real estate? I'm of the opinion that we are we're still so far behind economic equilibrium when it comes to housing, four, three, four, or five, and nobody knows the exact number. Three to five million homes short in the United States. That there's still a lot of upward pressure on housing prices. I think that we've seen such a massive run up since covid hit and we reopened and everyone started spending more time in their house putting more economic value on their house and then oh by the way let's add an office to the house all of a sudden inherently housing or residential real estate prices had a i'd say once in a generation event higher i think that there's still upward pressure on prices for a while and i think that you'll see that massive jump that we just saw over the last year and a half moderate significantly. But I really wouldn't be surprised if, we'd see, if we see housing prices continue year over year above trend, above what they have been doing over the last decade, as we have a long way to go to get back to equilibrium, meaning supply is still short, demand is still way outstripping supply.
1: So you think you should go ahead and buy that house instead of waiting?
0: Well, I think money into our next home. I, you know, I'm not exactly sure what he's saying here. But he's saying, I'd like to put money into our next home versus investing the money in in the home and maybe doing some renovations. Here's my take is I, I'm thinking, look, if you're looking to buy something and it's a, it's a more expensive home, then you'd rather do it sooner than later because it's just a larger asset that's inflating even more. And it costs even more money to buy it in the future. So if you're contemplating, and this is again, I don't know, and maybe Kevin from Kentucky doesn't even know exactly. If you're contemplating on do I wait a year or two, my take on on residential real estate today is do something sooner than waiting. And that's my that's that's my take. The next piece of the equation here would just be Simply, if we go back to that cash number, hey, frustrating, my cash is 0.1, 0.2, 0.5%. If we take a look at the bond market, this is just an investment thought for just a second. Mallory, as we're we're walking through Kevin's question here, is that I looked at, Vanguard has three different ETFs that I just at least look at as kind of benchmarks. There's BSV, BIV, and BLV. One is Vanguard short-term, total bond market. One is intermediate term, BIV. And then BLV is Vanguard Long-term bond ETF. These are baskets of essentially mostly government-oriented bonds, so treasuries and mortgage-backed securities that are essentially backed by the government, so super low risk. And then a little bit of that pie chart. If you were to look at what kind of bonds, a little bit of that pie chart is corporate bonds, which have higher yields because they're not they, they don't have the backing of the of the U.S. government. So it's a, it's a it's an ag, it's a it is very much looking at a, a total bond market index, and here are the, here are the yields, and these are subject to change depending on when you're listening to this podcast. But I think it gets to the point is that the really short term is in the one and a quarter range, the intermediate term is a one point nine range, so not even two percent, and then long term Vanguard long term bond has a yield of about three, and again subject to change. But there's just not a lot there. And, and the last thing I think anybody wants to do is say, hey, we're going to reach for 3% in a long-term bond ETF because there's a ton of volatility there. If interest rate rates go up – and remember, bond prices and interest rates work like a seesaw. If interest rates happen to go up, let's say the Fed over the next six months or a year says we're going to go from zero to one, and the and, which is a, it's a material rise in interest rates, you could see – the price of something like BLV, which is an ETF, a basket of bonds, go down by 15%. So really longer term bonds have to give you a little bit more yield. They're also much more sensitive to price movements. And if rates go up a bunch, prices likely go down a bunch. So just be really careful thinking that all bonds are created equal because they're not. Now, I know that wasn't the question Kevin asked, but it was in, it just that was an important piece of the equation. Hopefully, Kevin from Kentucky, hopefully that helps. All right, where do we head next?
1: All right. So, next we've got Eli from Pennsylvania. And he writes in and he says, Wes, I am the father of three grown children, and I'm proud of each of them. Y'all, this might be my favorite question Aww. we've had. He says,
0: <laughs> He's proud of each of them? It's so sweet. He says, They're sweet. First of all, why is he Eli from Pennsylvania, not Peter from Pennsylvania?
1: Well, you know, it sounds like he might be Amish.
0: oh that could be it okay Peter from PA or Eli Eli we'll call him I'm thinking he might be Eli Stoltzfus from from Pennsylvania
1: I cannot say that last name so I'm going to leave that one Stoltzfus
0: Stoltzfus. pretty much so again if you've been listening to this podcast you know my dad was a veterinarian right near Lancaster we used to go to these Amish farms pretty much every Amish family I know and the last name was either Stoltzfus or King it was Eli Stoltzfus or Eli King or Ben Stoltzfus those are the three names
1: well, that's at least easy to remember. Um, well, So he, he writes in, he says, uh, he's talking about his kids, and he says, they're smart, driven, and fun to have around, which, oh, what, what a great thing. He says, all three kids have left the nest, and I have two that are married. Mm. I'm hoping for grandkids soon. My youngest son is single and trying to find his place in the world. He wants to get his PhD in theology. I'm considering paying for his degree. I think I can do this and still fund my retirement, but it'll be close. I'm also worried about how my other children will feel about mm. this. Do you think I should offer this to him? And if so, how do I tell my other kids?
0: Okay, Eli. There, there's a lot to this one, and he's, he's ahead, Eli's ahead of me because my kids are still little. Not that little anymore. My oldest is 14, but I still have a 5-year-old going, just going to kindergarten. So I got a little ways to go when it comes to college and certainly beyond college. And, you know, listen, there's never any financial right or wrong answer. Like I never grew up learning what any of these things meant financially as a parent. You know, what is the financial roadmap as a parent? I I don't, again, there's there's nothing in the books. So I actually have researched this on my own because I, I actually believe that at least understanding, if we were to collectively look at this scenario and ask retirees, "Hey, did did your kids what level of education did your kids go through, and how much do you pay your adult children?" Because there's a giant amount of Americans that support their adult children. In fact, if I pull out a study, if I can remember, this is I think you, we got a lot of this from Pew Research, but if you look at the percentage of parents who give financial support to their adult children. It's something like 60%. 60%. In fact, let's check that statistic because I've got my laptop right here. This is one. This is Pew Research Center. I have this chart. Yeah, it's, it's forty. only 41% of adults' parents don't give their kids financial support. Only 41%. That's pretty amazing. Now, according to Pew, now, some of this is when this is just being a parent and it's helping their kids with medical expenses. And a big chunk of it is that. the Something like 60% of the parents cite that that is at least part of the equation. But then another huge piece of the equation is rent and mortgage. So parents helping kids with their rent and their mortgage. Not kids. I'm sorry. Adult children. Education, so either their education or their kid's education, and then just general household expenses. So it's a big number, right? What's interesting, and this is something that I've studied empirically, and here's what my research finds. And again, we're always researching the ingredients for a happy versus an unhappy retirement. You don't have to follow the recipe perfectly. It's like a big, it's like an old family Italian recipe. You can kind of choose what you want and how much salt you want, but it's important to at least get most of the components right. Here's one of them. Unhappy retirees spend over $700 per month on their adult children, that's just on average. The happy camp kept that amount to under 500 bucks a month. If you start looking at some of the extremes in our our data, once a couple was hitting two grand a month, of support for their adult children, they are more than 400% more likely to end up in the unhappy camp. So again, for, for whatever reason, being overly burdened as a, as an adult with your adult kids, it's just, it, it is a hit to your pocketbook. Cause it hits your psyche. There's maybe some guilt involved there. I don't, I'm not going to pretend to know the exact reasoning, but the data shows that if you're spending too much on your kids, then it, it takes a toll. Now, the next topic, and I think this is interesting from what Eli is asking. He's asking about helping his son to get a PhD, and that PhD is in theology. So I'm not. It doesn't matter what the PhD is. What I we're, what I've studied. It, and i've asked this question because i there's this there's this great body of of work and knowledge that shows just how good education is so it's study after study more education leads to more income more education leads to higher levels of happiness i've seen studies around that more education leads to you living longer so if you you actually go and look at there's a Wharton study that, that talks about the the increasing mortality gap of education. It shows that, hey, the more years you go to school, the, typically on average, the, the longer you live. So there's all this wonderful information around the positive correlation between good things and education. And, I, and it's hard to disagree with that. But it's funny that if and I, I asked this and again, in relation to those in, le, happiness levels in retirement, where what was the level of education did your kids go? it was it um, high school? was it college? was it master's, was it PhD? And again, same thing, happiness levels rose. The, if your kids w- w- went to college, they you're typically a happy retiree if then your kids just went to high school. You're typically, happiness levels seem to creep up higher if your kids have a master's degree. I don't know what that is. Maybe you're a great parent. Maybe you're proud. But then we actually saw happiness levels for adults in reti- or nearing retirement or in retirement trail off and actually go lower. So happiness levels didn't tail off. This is not a plateau effect. They actually dropped. And they dropped once education levels for their kids got beyond about the master's level. Now, the, now the reason I think behind happiness levels going up along with higher education is that more education means more independent kids, more you, we want our children to be independent. Again, go back to the, the, the financial assistance, the less money we're paying our kids, the better off we are, which means the more independent our kids are, are, are financially because they don't need your money. Independence means our kids are out of the nest. In what the happiest retirees know, that's coming out this fall. There's more data that you want to live within driving distance to your kids, so at least 25% of your kids. Better, 50% or more of your kids. In fact, happiness levels go through the roof. Two times more likely, Eli's listening, to be a happy retiree if you live near at least half your kids, which is is interesting information when you're doing your long-term family planning. It has real implications. Where do we live? Well, really solid bet. Live near at least half the kids, maybe all the kids. Because living near the kids is great for retirement habits. Having your kids live at home, it's a disaster. It's a, it's a material hit on overall quality of life. And again, there's maybe other variables around this. This is just what the data shows. But when it comes to too, too, too much education, or let's say way beyond, which let's, I'd say a PhD is that, parents, Eli, this to you in this situation, you may end up getting into one of these strings of never-ending education, which means never-ending bills, which means grown-up never-ending living at your house and grown-up that you never end when it comes to financial support. And all of those data points start to take a chunk out of the parent's happiness. So there's no perfect answer here for Eli, but collectively, if I had to sum up all the research that I've done around happy retirees and their kids, particularly adult kids, you want independent children, period. And if you're going to have to sacrifice your, A, your own retirement, and B, cause some family inner angst, because one of the kids wants to keep going. And by the way, again, I'm not here to judge theology at all. It's just that theology is not probably a place that that... Your son's going to make a ton of money anyway. Again, n- not my job to say what PhD to get. But if you're even remotely worried about it, my, my research corroborates that, those worries. And I would, I would do my level best as a parent to figure out a way for not-so-little Johnny, because he's grown up now getting a PhD, to figure out a way to do this completely on his own, completely independently, Because I think it ends up having the best outcome, perhaps, for maybe both of you. And I think we'll leave it at that.
1: Well, I think that's all the questions that we have for this week. Uh, Maybe I can talk into doing another one of these if people like Yeah, I
0: like this. I I like having somebody in the studio.
1: It is nice. As opposed to
0: me just talking into a microphone.
1: (laughs) Sometimes that happens too. Listen, those aren't bad either, though.
0: Uh, thank you for being here on the show. Enjoyable to have you here picking these questions out. And we'd love to hear from more folks across the nation. Doesn't matter if you're in Seattle or Wyoming or in Amish country from Pennsylvania. We'd love to hear from you here on the Retire Sooner podcast. Of course, you can find us at WesMoss.com. There's a contact button upper right-hand corner. Those emails come straight to me. And the Retire Sooner team, thanks so much for listening.
1: Hey, y'all. This is Mallory with the Retire Sooner team. Please be sure to rate and subscribe to this podcast and share it with a friend. If you have any questions, you can find us at westmoss.com. That's W-E-S-M-O-S-S dot com. You can also follow us on Instagram and YouTube. You'll find us under the handle Retire Sooner Podcast. And now for our show's disclosure. information.